Welcome to the Determined Truth Podcast. I want the truth. You can't handle the truth. Where we aim to explore questions of truth, the scriptures, and what it means for the church today. Here's your host, Rob Dalrymple. Today's podcast, we're going to continue our study of the Gospel of John. We're going to be opening up in chapter 1 and uh, beginning there. John says, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God, and all things came into being by him, and apart from him nothing came into being that has come into being. In him was life, and that life was the light of men. And the light shines in the darkness, and the darkness did not comprehend it. 1 through 18 serves kind of as a prologue, as your introduction to the Gospel of John. And the great commentator, uh, Gary Burge, who hopefully you've listened to our podcast with Gary, uh, Gary breaks chapter 1, verses 1 through 18, kind of into four strophes, or four poems itself. The first part of the, uh, of the poetry then begins in verses 1 through 3, which identifies the word as being with God. And you might be aware that the word word in Greek is logos. In the beginning was the logos, or the word. The word was with God, and the word was God. He was in the beginning with God. Uh, now, we're gonna, this is going to climax, of course, in verse 14, when the word of the logos becomes flesh. In our introduction to Jesus, John's telling us, a little, let me give you a little bit of context here. The, the, the word that became flesh was actually in the beginning with God. And in fact, he not only was with God in the beginning, he was God. Now, the idea of in the beginning refers to prior to creation itself. It's been taken by some to mean, well, he was there at the beginning, but not prior to the beginning. No, the idea of, uh, of Jesus being uh, there in the beginning means even prior to the creation itself. Now, it says that the Word was with God, and the Word was God. And the best way to understand these two expressions is to understand it in light of the Christian doctrine of the Trinity. The, the Trinity says that the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit are three distinct persons, yet one in nature. Three in person, one in nature. The distinction in person is evident by the fact that the Word was with God. The words with the Father suggest that the Word is not the Father. They are distinct in person. Yet the Word was God. So he's equal with God in nature. Distinct in person, he's with God, yet equal in nature. Now, there's actually a translation out there by the Jehovah's Witnesses that says the, uh, that it must be translated as a God. The word was with God and the word was a God. The problem with this is real simple. For, for one, it simply wouldn't fit in the first century Jewish context. The Jewish world was strictly monotheistic. Now, monotheism means the belief in the existence of only one God. It doesn't say the belief in the worship of only one God. That's henotheism. Henotheism says there might be many gods out there, but we only worship one. The Jews were strict monotheists. There's only one God out there, and that's the one that we worship. Now, if we were to go into detail about the Greek, which we're not going to do on a podcast such as this, we would be able to confirm that there's no way to translate this Greek passage as the word was a God, that the, the rules of Greek grammar require this to be translated as the word was God. The key thought in the gospel, then, is that the words and deeds of Jesus are indeed the words and deeds of God the Father. The Word was with God, and the Word was God, and then in verse 14, the Word became flesh. The end result, then, as Gary Burr says in our, in our podcast with Gary, that a key element to understanding the gospel of John is this idea of agency. That in the ancient world, a king or a, a noble, some very significant person that wants to conduct business in a distant place away, will send an agent for them. That agent will act and have the authority of the, of the sender. In this instance, Jesus is the agent, and the Father is, of course, the sender. 
Now, the introduction to the Gospel of John then continues by saying that all things came into being by him, and apart from him, nothing came into being that has come into being. In him was life, and that life was the light of men. And the light shines in the darkness, and the darkness did not comprehend it. Through Jesus came into, all, all things came into existence, that Jesus is not just the agent of God in terms of a, of a message, the one coming down to us, but he's also the agent in his actions. Um, he positively is the source of, of, of creation. In fact, negatively, without him, nothing came into being that has come into being. In, in fact, in Jesus, then, this light shines in the darkness. Remember Genesis chapter 1, God created light. Uh, let there be light. Now, chapter 1, verse 6, then, says, There came a man sent from God whose name was John. And this, of course, our introduction to John the Baptist. He came for a witness, that he might bear witness of the light, that all might believe through him. He was not the light, but he came that he might bear witness of the light. Now, at this point, we might wonder whether there was some sect of people in the Jewish world around John uh, that was believing that John the Baptist was some messianic-type figure. And John the Baptist responds by saying, No, uh, John the Baptist came as a witness to the light, but he himself was not actually the light. Now, verse 9, There was the true light, which coming into the world enlightens every man. He was in the world, and the world was made through him, and the world did not know him. He came to his own, and those who were his own did not receive him. But as many as received him, to them he gave the right to become children of God, even to those who believe in his name, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. Now, John the Baptist came, whereas Jesus was. In the beginning was the word. John, And then in verse 6 says, There came a man sent from God. John was sent as a witness to testify him, and he himself was not the light. But the one who did come, Jesus, is the true light. He's the true light that comes into the world. He came to his own, it says in verse 11, but even his own did not receive him. Tragically, of course, John's giving us a little bit of the context. Is he came to his own people, his own home place, his own, his own place, and those who were his own did not receive him. In chapter 4, four verse 44, it says, Jesus himself testified that a prophet has no honor in his own country. However, John says, to those who did receive him, to those who believe in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. Now, the idea of children of God means that we become the covenant people of God. If we receive him and, and believe, and we're going to see this role of receiving and believing, uh, it's not just simply believing uh, in and of itself, but having this allegiance to Jesus, trusting in him completely. To those who do that, he gave the right to become the children of God, the covenant children of God. Now, verse 14, the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we beheld his glory. Glory is of the only begotten from the Father, full of grace and truth. Now, John bore witness to him, and he cried out, saying, this is he of whom I said, He who comes after me is a higher rank than I, for he existed before me. For of his fullness we have all received, and uh, we have all received, and grace upon grace. For the law was given through Moses, and grace and truth were realized through Jesus Christ. No man has ever seen God at any time. The only begotten God, who is in the bosom of the Father, he has explained him. Gary Burst says that John 1.14 might be one of the most important verses in the entire Bible. The Word became flesh. Note also here the distinction with John chapter 1, verse 1, and John 1, verse 14. In the beginning was the Word. He, he, that's, what, that's what he was. He didn't become the Word. He was the Word, suggesting that's his eternal nature. But he became flesh. That's something that he became. There's a point in time when he was not flesh, but then he was flesh. Meaning Jesus' eternality of being the Logos is distinct from his finiteness of being human. He became man. 
Now, this is a concept that's shocking to an ancient culture, especially one that's steeped in Neoplatonism, uh, which suggests that the physical and spiritual worlds are radically separate. Uh, instead, John says, no, uh, Jesus tabernacled among us. Now, the idea of Jesus being tabernacled among us, by the way, is comparing Jesus uh, to the presence of God in the wilderness. Uh, the word for tabernacle here means uh, to pitch a tent. It's the language that's actually used to describe God's dwelling among the Israelites during the time of the wilderness wandering with, with Moses. The glory of God that once dwelt in the tabernacle is now present in Christ. John says, and we beheld his glory. Glory is of the only begotten from the Father. This is the word uh, glory that suggests the presence of God in the tabernacle itself. Not only did Jesus tabernacle amongst us, but the result of God tabernacling amongst us is the fact that we saw his glory. Psalm 26 verse 8 says, O Lord, I love the habitation of your house and the place where your glory dwells. The tabernacle is where God's glory dwelt. And in Jesus, he is both the tabernacle and the glory of God dwelling amongst us. Now, the word glory in the Gospel of John, we're going to have to pay attention to it because it's going to appear several times. And it's going to be supreme, supremely tied with Jesus' death and exaltation. The hour for Jesus to be glorified happens at the cross and through his death and resurrection. It's not just in his coming in his presence. In the Old Testament, the word glory, as I mentioned already, suggests God's visible presence in the temple itself. The Old Testament glory of God is now associated with the manifestation in Jesus. Now, in the Old Testament, God first dwelt in a tabernacle with Moses, and then later on, after the time of Solomon, he dwelt in the temple. Now, this new temple is going to be Jesus himself. Now, John bore witness to these things, it says in verse 15, and the end result is that we have all received grace upon grace. Through the law, the law came through Moses, but grace and truth came through Jesus. The law, of course, was, was pointing us to Christ all along. The covenant of Christ now fulfills this previous gracious covenant of the law. The law was given, but now Christ has come. This leads us then to the thesis statement that I mentioned already, verse 18. No one has ever seen God, which has to be a reference to the Father, just as it was in chapter 1, verse 1. But God the one and only, or God the only begotten, which, of course, is the same phrase used in John 3.16, for God so loved the world that he gave his one and only, or his only begotten. So we know in chapter 3 that the one and only is Jesus. So no one has ever seen God, again at the beginning of the verse, uh, meaning God the Father. And then God the one and only, which we know is a reference to Jesus. And John says, he's the one who's in the bosom of the Father, or, or, or reclining in deep intimacy with the Father. He has made him known. He, referring to Jesus, has made him, referring to the Father, known. So again, this verse is kind of difficult or complex, but basically the idea is that no one's ever seen the Father, but God the one and only, who's in intimate relationship with the Father, he has made the Father known. This God who was with the Father in John chapter 1, verse 1, who's been manifested in John chapter 1, verse 14, and in doing so, he makes the Father known. Now we'll note also, by the way, that in chapter 13, this the beloved disciple at the last supper of at the last supper is sitting in the in the bosom of Jesus. So as Jesus was sitting in this seat of intimacy with the Father, so also John, perhaps the apostle, is sitting in the seat of intimacy with Jesus. Now, chapter one, verses nineteen through uh, fifty-one, kind of gives this prelude to Jesus's public ministry. 
chapters 1, verses 1 through 18 is kind of our introduction to the Gospel of John. And now chapter 1, 19 through at least verse 51 is kind of this introduction to the ministry of Jesus. We'll note, however, later on that the chapter break at the beginning of chapter 2 is probably not the best chapter break. It appears that from 119 through 211, there's going to be seven days that are going to be referred to. Uh, the, idea, the first day, the second day, the third day, and uh, John chapter 2 are going to begin on the th- three days later. And if we add up all these days, we seem to have a week in Jesus' ministry, or perhaps at the beginning of his ministry. And it may be that Jesus' ministries, or John's describing Jesus' ministry, in parallel to the first week of creation. Chapter 1, verse 19 then says, The witness of John, uh, when the Jews sent to him priests and Levites from Jerusalem to ask him, Who are you? And John confessed and did not deny. And he says, I am not the Christ. And they asked him, Well, what then? Are, are you Elijah? And he said, I am not. Uh, are you the prophet? And he said, No. They said to them, Who are you? So that we may give an answer to those who sent us. Who? What do you say about yourself? And John says in verse 23, I am the voice of one crying in the wilderness. Make straight the way of the Lord. As Isaiah the prophet has said, now they had, sent, they had been sent from the Pharisees, and they asked him and said to him, Well, why are you baptizing if you're not the Christ, nor Elijah, nor the prophet? John answered them, uh, I baptize you in water, but among you stands one whom you do not know. And this he who comes after me, the thong of whose sandal I am not worthy to untie. Now these things took place in Bethany, beyond the Jordan, where John was baptizing. The religious leaders sent a delegation out to the wilderness to see who John the Baptist is and to see what's going on. Probably, of course, because they're a little bit fearful. There have been a number of messianic pretenders before the time of Jesus and a few even after the time of Jesus. And every time these messianic pretenders, they kind of go out to the wilderness and they kind of get this rebel gang of, of misfits together, maybe even similar to what King David did as when he uh, took over control. Uh, but they come in and they, 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 they kind of wreak a little bit of havoc, and then the Romans come in and stamp them out and cause problems for everybody, and the Jewish people as a whole are being punished. The religious leaders are thinking, well, if there's some prophetic movement going on out there, we want to know what's going on. Because when Rome begins to ask, we want to be able to have an answer. And after all, if this really is the Messiah, we'll support this guy. But if he's not the Messiah, we're going to let him know, hey, let's keep this on the lowdown because we don't want to get punished ourselves by Rome. So they send a delegation out to John the Baptist. Well, who are you? And John the Baptist answers kind of with three negative answers. Well, I am not the Christ. I'm not Elijah. And I am not the prophet. The idea of, well, are you Elijah, when they ask him that question in verse 21, uh, comes from the fact that in the book of Malachi, chapter 4, uh, verse 5, it says that Elijah will come before the day of the Lord. So we're expecting this Elijah figure. Are, are you Elijah? Are you the one coming who's going to prepare the way for the Christ? Now, John says, I am not Elijah. Of course, he was dressed like Elijah, and he was kind of acting like a prophetic figure. But according to the synoptic gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, Jesus actually, especially in Matthew 11, verse 14, Jesus explicitly says that John the Baptist was Elijah. Well, how do we reconcile this? John the Baptist says, I'm not Elijah. Jesus says John the Baptist was Elijah. It may very well be explained by the fact that John the Baptist probably didn't know at this time that he really was Elijah, or even maybe even at a later date. He doesn't really know that he's fulfilling the role and the ministry and mission of Elijah. Jesus then comes along later, maybe even after the time John the Baptist has already been beheaded, and says, no, John the Baptist fulfilled that passage because he wasn't in a reincarnation sense Elijah, because the Jews would never have had any such a concept among them, but that he was in the prophetic ministry of Elijah. Now also bear in mind what's happening here. Uh, the Jewish world has this understanding that from the time of Ezra, about 400 years or more earlier, the prophetic word had ceased. There hasn't been a prophet for 400 years. 
So if John the Baptist is out in the Jordan River Valley somewhere, and he's baptizing people, and he's making prophetic statements, and he's wearing the garb of a prophet uh, uh, with, with sackcloth and eating locusts, and he's acting like a prophet, something radical is going on. Something unique is going on. The next question then is, well, are you the prophet? And by the prophet, they mean the one about whom Moses spoke in Deuteronomy 18. In Deuteronomy 18, God says to Moses that God will raise up a prophet like Moses from amongst the people. So, so are, are you this prophet? Maybe this messianic figure been associated with the prophet of Deuteronomy. And John the Baptist says, no, I am not. So they press him for an answer. Well, then who are you? And John's answer comes from the words of the book of Isaiah. John explains, I am the voice of one crying in the wilderness, make straight the way of the Lord, as Isaiah the prophet had said. Now, they go on to inquire of John even further. Well, why then are you baptizing if you're not the Christ, nor Elijah, nor the prophet? And John said, well, I baptize you in water. But among you stands one whom you do not know. And as he who comes after me, the thong of whose sandal I am not worthy to untie. The idea of a servant being responsible for taking off the master's shoes. And John's answer is, I'm not even worthy to take off his shoes. Uh, John says, I'm not, I'm not even worthy of this. Now, verse 29 says, The next day he saw Jesus coming to him. And he said, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. This is he on behalf of whom I said, After me comes a man who has a higher rank than I, for he existed before me. And I did not recognize him, but in order that he might be manifested to Israel, I came baptizing in water. And John bore witness, saying, I have beheld the Spirit descending as a dove out of heaven, and he remained upon him. And, and I didn't recognize him. But he who sent me to baptize in water said to me, He upon whom you see the Spirit descending and remaining upon him, this is the one who baptizes in the Holy Spirit. And I have seen and have borne witness that this is the Son of God. Now verse 29 begins within the, with the next day, which suggests that we're perhaps on day number two. And you might think, well, that's kind of strange or whatever. But it appears that John actually wants us to count. Verse 35, he says, and again the next day, which would be the third day. And then verse 43 says, and the next day, which suggests that that's the fourth day. So it seems that John wants us to count these days. And when we do count them, it appears that we're going to end up with seven days. And so perhaps chapter one, as I mentioned already, through the beginning of chapter two, has this seven days, uh, a notion that there's this creation week that Jesus is working within. But nonetheless, John the Baptist stresses that Jesus is indeed the one, because he knows, because after he baptized him, he saw the Holy Spirit descending as a dove out of heaven and remaining upon him. And John was told, the one whom you see the Spirit remaining upon, that's the one. Now, we won't go into de detail now, but let's pay attention a little bit to the notions of water and references to the Spirit. In many ways, we might be able to argue that the Gospel of John has a higher view of the Spirit and the role of the Spirit uh, than even of Jesus himself. It seems that Jesus is going to take a back seat, so to speak, and I don't mean that in a pejorative way at all, to the Holy Spirit. So by the time we get to chapters 12 and 13, Jesus is already saying, look, I'm stepping out of the way because the Spirit is coming. And the benefit of having the Spirit is the fact that the Spirit's going to be with you always, even in the end of the age. So it's going to be a very high theology and a very high role of the Spirit in the Gospel of John. And we'll just note that right now, that Jesus is already identified as the Messiah because the Spirit remains upon him. Verse 35, the next day, John was standing with two of his disciples. And he looked upon Jesus as he walked and said, Behold, the Lamb of God. And the two disciples heard him speak, and they followed him. Jesus turned and beheld them following and said to them, What do you seek? And they said, Rabbi, which translated means teacher, where are you staying? He said to them, Come, and you will see. 
They came, therefore, and saw where he was staying, and they stayed with him that day, for it was about the tenth hour, which would be about four o'clock in the afternoon. And one of the two excuse me, who had heard John speak and followed him was Andrew, Simon Peter's brother. He found first his own brother Simon and said to him, We have found the Messiah, which translated means Christ. And he brought him to Jesus. Jesus looked at him and said, You are Simon, the son of John. You should be called Cephas, which is translated as Peter. Now, note the indications throughout this particular passage that we've already discussed before that the Gospel of John appears to have been written late. There's a number of phrases and things like rabbi, which translated means teacher, that suggest that this is written later on enough that John's readers are not aware of Aramaic phrases and Aramaic phraseology. We found the Messiah, it says in verse 41, which translated means the Christ. So John's speaking to a, a Gentile audience that's not familiar with the customs and language of first century Palestinian world. Now we see here the beginning of Jesus' gathering of disciples. Now in the Gospel of Mark in particular, but the other Gospels as well, you see kind of a strangeness to the calling of the first disciples. In Mark chapter 1, Jesus walks upon the sea, walks up to the Sea of Galilee and tells a few guys in a boat, say, hey, come follow me, and they jump out of the boat and begin to follow Jesus. Now, the story in Mark 1 makes for great preaching. When Jesus comes and calls you, you jump out of the boat and you begin to follow him. But it seems a little strange. Why would these guys who barely even recognize Jesus or maybe even don't even know who Jesus is begin to jump out of the boat and begin to follow Jesus? It's only when we read the Gospel of John that we begin to realize that these guys have actually seen Jesus before. They were actually followers of John the Baptist. And when Jesus came out to get baptized by John the Baptist, John the Baptist turns to his disciples, including Peter and Andrew, and says, look, that guy's the Messiah. I've seen the Holy Spirit resting upon him. So now you see Andrew coming up to, John, to Jesus and saying, hey, uh, where are you staying, Rabbi? And Jesus says, come and you will see. And this might be the great call in the Gospel of John. Come and see. Rabbi, where are you staying? Come, and you will see. The disciples, of course, are, are described as, as disciples of Jesus by another key word, and that is the word following Jesus. In verse 37, it says they, they followed Jesus. Verse 38, Jesus turned and beheld them following him, and he said to them, what do you seek? Now, Andrew then goes, and he gets Simon Peter, his brother. Verse 43 then says, the next day he purposed to go into Galilee, and he found Philip, and Jesus said to him, follow me. Now, Philip was from Bethsaida, of the city of Andrew and Peter. Philip found Nathanael and said to him, We have found him of whom Moses and the law and also the prophets wrote, Jesus of Nazareth, the son of Joseph. And Nathanael said to him, Can any good thing come out of Nazareth? Philip said to him, Come and see. Jesus saw Nathanael coming to him, and he said to him, Behold, an Israelite indeed, in whom there is no guile. Nathanael said to him, How do you know me? Jesus answered and said to him, before Philip called you when you were under the fig tree, I saw you. Nathanael answered, Rabbi, you are the Son of God. You are the King of Israel. Jesus answered and said to him, Because I said to you that I saw you under the fig tree, do you believe? You shall see greater things than these. And he said to him, Truly, truly, I say to you, you shall see the heavens opened and the angels of God ascending and descending on the Son of Man. One of the things to notice here in the Gospel of John is the fact that the disciples are gathering other disciples. It says in verse 40, 43, the next day he purposed to go, into Gal go forth into Galilee, and he found Philip. Now, we probably assume that the he of this passage is Jesus. The next statement says, and Jesus said to him, follow me. But it could very well be that the he here is actually Andrew. It seems that everyone who comes to Jesus is coming to Jesus because somebody else brought them to Jesus. 
John the Baptist tells his two disciples and says, hey, look, that's the Messiah. He, he's the Lamb of God. Go follow him. Andrew then goes off and gets Simon Peter. Philip, in verse 45, went and found Nathanael. Um, so it seems that maybe that the he here might be Andrew. Andrew found Philip. Philip found Nathanael. And the pattern of, of discipleship seems to have already been established here in John chapter 1. Now, the encounter with Nathanael is kind of interesting. Nathanael's from the city of Cana, which may have been a rival city to the city of Nazareth. Nazareth was kind of a podunk little town up in the, up in the top of the hills with a village of maybe 400 people without much of an economy. Cana was on the edge of a fertile valley and uh, plenty of occupations and plenty of jobs were going to be there. And so he looks kind of down on Jesus. So Nathanael comes to see Jesus and he says, Behold an Israelite, indeed, in whom there is no guile. Now, there's a play on words here. The word Israelite, of course, means one who wrestles with God. You may recall the Old Testament account where Jacob wrestles with God and his name is changed to Israel. But the word Jacob means a deceiver. So Jesus identifies Nathanael as an Israelite, indeed in whom there is no deception or deceiving. In other words, you're an Israelite, one who wrestles with God and not a Jacob. Nathanael then says, well, how do you know me? And Jesus says, well, I saw you when you were under the fig tree. Now, a fig tree is often associated with praying and meditation and study. In the book of Zechariah, it says in chapter 3, verse 10, In that day, declares the Lord of hosts, every one of you will invite his neighbor to sit under his vine and under his fig tree. So Zechariah 3.10 indicates that when the fulfillment comes, everyone will invite others to sit under the fig tree. And maybe Jesus is indicating, look, that day has come. The point of whatever is happening here is that Nathaniel knows what Jesus is talking about. Maybe Jesus has some divine insight that there's no way he could have known that Nathaniel was under this fig tree. And as a result, Nathaniel confesses, you are the Son of God. You are the King of Israel. Nathaniel's confession confirms the supernatural element of Jesus' claim. If Jesus then turns to Nathaniel and says, is that why you believe? Because I said I saw you under the fig tree? <laughs> You're going to see a lot better things than that. Truly, truly, I say to you, Jesus says, you'll see the heavens open and the angels of God ascending and descending on the Son of Man. Now, this is an incredibly provocative statement. First off, the phrase, truly, truly, we're going to see throughout the Gospel of John. It occurs 25 times, this double truly. And it implies that uh, uh, this utterance is absolutely trustworthy. There's a certainty what I'm about to say. Jesus says, you will see. And by the way, the word you here is actually plural. He's not referring just to Nathaniel, but to all those who happen to be present of the disciples. You're going to see the heavens open. And then you're going to see the angels ascending and descending. Now, this is a reference, of course, to the Jacob again, whose name was changed to Israel in Genesis 28. And he had a dream. And in that dream in Genesis 28, God appeared to Jacob at a, at a place called Bethel. Now, Bethel means the house of God. It's a sanctuary. And Jacob built a small sanctuary there. In the story, he saw angels ascending and descending on it. Jesus then turns around and says, you're going to see angels of God ascending and descending on the Son of Man. In other words, where the angels ascended and descended on the, on the house of God, they're now ascending and descending on Jesus. Not it, him. Jesus is the new Bethel. Jesus is the new place of God's dwelling. We, we know that because John's giving us the indication in chapter 1 that we mentioned earlier, that Jesus is, is God tabernacling amongst us. Now Jesus is unequivocally, unashamedly saying, I and the new place where God's presence will ascend and descend upon. Thank you for listening to today's podcast. If you would like more information on the Determined Truth podcast, you can find us on iTunes. 
You can follow Rob's blog at DeterminedTruth.com or purchase his books on Amazon.com. See you next time.